All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter number three. Philippians chapter number three. The title of the song that we just sang is going to be the title of our message this morning simply, Jesus is Better. Jesus is Better. And I hope this morning, as we continue to work our way through this book of Philippians, I pray that we will be challenged, encouraged, confronted, reminded of these realities that Jesus alone truly is, he's better. And this is the thesis, if you will, of this next section of Philippians chapter number three, verses 4 through 11 is what, by God's grace, we're going to attempt to cover this morning. Paul is declaring that Jesus is better. And he's continuing to confront the, the false teaching of his day that uh, would seek to add on works of the law, add on requirements of circumcision and other uh, works in order to be in right relationship with God the Father. So Paul is challenging those false gospels, those false teachings head on and declaring that Jesus is better than our works. Jesus is better than our religion. Jesus is better than all the things that we could accomplish in our own strength. And so let us be challenged with these truths from the inspired and inerrant word of God this morning. Would you join me as we open in a word of prayer? Father God, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather once again as the bride of Christ, the church. I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would work in our midst, convict our hearts, strengthen our minds. Let us be confronted with the truth of word of God and let us not become the forgetful hearer, but let us be doers of your word this morning. So I pray that we would have ears to hear. God, I pray that you would challenge all the idols of our hearts. Pray that you would break down the trophies of our own works that we often hold up and pursue, become enamored with. I pray that Every person that's here this morning, and we know that every person is here by your direct providence. There are no accidents or coincidences in your kingdom. Everybody is here because you have ordained it, Father. And so I pray that we would go away declaring that, Jesus, you are better. That we would place our confidence in that truth. Father, I pray that you would do a work that I cannot do. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you looked at your worship guide this morning, you'll notice at the top, we always put the date. Today is September 11th. On this day, 21 years ago, 246 people prepared for their morning flights. 2,606 people headed to work at those World Trade Towers. 
as they always did every day. 343 firefighters and eight paramedics prepared for their morning shift. 60 police officers began their morning patrol and none of them saw past 10 a.m. on September 11th, 2001. In one single moment, life was never the same for those family units. September 11th of 2001 is a day that most Americans will never forget. If you've gone through an airport any time recent, you've noticed that every TSA uh, headquarters there has that phrase, we'll never forget. I was in high school then where a special assembly was, was held on that day, not knowing what was going on or what was happening. We gathered in my little Christian school and we simply prayed. In the coming days as the rubble was cleared and the search and rescues were called off. There was a soberness that came over the United States of America. Do you remember it? That soberness led to a reflection on the brevity of life. And God used those heinous acts and senseless, senseless acts of violence to bring literally thousands to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Nearly 3,000 souls on that day were ushered into eternity in a matter of moments. In a matter of moments, husbands, fathers, wives, and mothers, grandparents were just but a memory. See, there's one thing that we all have in common, no matter our differences, background experiences. Our commonality is this, that at some point in our lives, and at the appointed time, life will end for us as well. This is the sobering reality that Paul lived every day of his life in. Absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. A desire to be with the Lord, yet trying to be a good steward of the time that the Lord had given the Apostle Paul to simply do what? Proclaim the good news that Jesus saves, that Jesus is better. See, Paul had a story to tell. In Philippians chapter number three, he had a story to tell, and that story to tell was his salvation experience. And there was an immense level of gratitude and thankfulness that Paul lived just his life, it seemed to be, for what's recorded in Scripture, it seemed to be every waking moment he was living in light of the reality that an undeserving sinner was saved by grace. And that reality that a, a holy God would, would save him through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was something that Paul never got over. It was never just a point in his life that he put in the back burner and he moved on to living the, the Jewish dream. <laughs> For Paul, that, that was not even an option because the gospel had changed his life. 
And as a result, it changed how he viewed the world that he lived in. It changed how he viewed the interactions with other people. And so friends, on this day, in the shadow of September 11th, should there not be, even for us, a soberness that comes over us to remember the brevity of life? Just over a year ago, June of 2021, my dad finished a hard shift at Ford Motor Company, closed his eyes, and never woke up again at the age of 61. Alvi, beloved husband of, of Maxine here, battling COPD and, and on hospice, ultimately his body failed and went on to eternity. Sister-in-law of, of Kim, Georgette, just recently passed away. I'll be attending the funeral just in a couple weeks, right, Kim? Please keep Russ and Kim in your prayers as they seek to be a light and help and support to that family. There's a soberness about life that it is short. It's but a vapor that quickly comes up and vanishes away. And then what? What will the works of our hands accomplish? What will the things that we do in this earth really amount to? The name that we establish, the ladder that we climb, the promotions that we achieve, the stuff that we accumulate, will it really matter? There's a soberness about life. And Paul is addressing these dynamics and these situations, and Paul is declaring in Philippians chapter 3 that none of those things matter. Because Jesus is better. As Paul continues to tell his story, his story of salvation, sharing his testimony in this, in this letter to the church at Philippi, he is declaring Jesus is better. So the big idea of our text this morning is this, because Jesus is better than anything and everything Anything meaning he is better than one single thing that you could ever compare him against. He far outweighs it and is better 100% of the time. And then cumulatively, everything that you could uh, bring together, Jesus is better than all of it. So because Jesus is better than anything and everything, by God's grace, I can wholeheartedly place my trust in him alone for salvation. So if you'll remember with me from last week, we learned that joy is the safeguard for our hearts and our minds, and it's this Holy Spirit-empowered joy that, that refutes the claims of false teaching, that Jesus isn't enough, that we need to layer on works of our own hands, that we need to uh, create a name for ourselves, we need to do this, we need to do that, we just need to be better. Paul was going to further establish this fundamental truth that the gospel that finished at the end of verse number three, and what was it? 
That we are to glory in Christ Jesus and to put no confidence in the flesh. The truth of the gospel, as we see recorded in the Holy Scriptures, it will never include even one ounce of confidence in our own works for salvation. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. He'll further establish this truth by simply leveraging, again, his own story of salvation. So this morning, we're going to look at just two simple points. And these, these two points are going to flow out of the, really the structure of our text. Verses four through six, we're going to see Paul's pre-conversion confidence. Verses four through six, we're going to look at the pre-conversion confidence of Paul and that it was in himself. And then in verses 7 through 11, we're going to look at Paul's post-conversion confidence. And we'll see that his post-conversion confidence was no longer in himself, but it was only in Christ. So let's jump into it, looking at first Paul's pre-conversion confidence was in himself. So once again, Paul continues to refute the false teaching of his day. They were saying you had to be circumcised. You had to do these works. The works of the law had to be layered into your relationship with God in order to be accepted, in order to be received, in order to be in a right standing, to have righteousness before God. It depended in some way, shape, and form on myself. So there was this works-based view that was being taught. And essentially, what was it doing? It grasped onto the tradition and, and the religiosity of Judaism, and it imposed those requirements on people in order to be saved. This was not a bad grace through faith in Christ alone gospel that we see clearly in the word of God. It was a false gospel, and he's continuing to dismantle its claims piece by piece, and at the end of the day, Paul is heralding from the rooftops that Jesus is better. So we finish in verse three with this crystal clear admonition to do what? To put no confidence in the flesh. To put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is clear, that door is shut. There, there's not even the smallest opportunity for confidence in myself that would, that would bring any value into my standing relationship with the Lord. So Paul is going to go continued further toe-to-toe with these false teachers in an effort to expose the fallacy of this works-based salvation. So Paul goes on in verse number seven to do what? To share, excuse me, Paul goes on to share seven specific characteristics. We see this in verse number four. Let's read this. Verse Number four of Philippians chapter three, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man think, oh, excuse me, I'm in the King James Version. Let me switch over to my English Standard Version. Verse number four of Philippians chapter number three, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul shares these seven specific characteristics of his background and accomplishments that have set him apart 
from even these false teachers. If anyone could and anyone should have confidence in themselves for salvation, Paul said it was who? It was him. He's done it all. He's accomplished everything that you could accomplish in terms of religion and understanding of the Lord and keeping the law and, and just the minutia of detail. Paul checked every single box. So if somebody could or should have confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. But Paul says in verse, the end of verse number three, to put no confidence in the flesh. So what is Paul getting at here? Paul is saying, look, if anyone could preach this worst works-based salvation and have confidence in self, if anybody could promote this false gospel of a self-centered view of righteousness, it should be Paul. He's not throwing shade at these false teachers simply because he can't stack up. Paul is giving his resume. He's going toe-to-toe with these false teachers and said, look, I've got a stronger resume than you, and this is my understanding of a right relationship with God. And it has nothing to do with self. So Paul had those strong words and descriptions of them in those first three verses. He called them dogs, mutilators of the flesh, those derogatory terms to call out their true identity as false teachers. So Paul, in sharing his testimony, he's somewhat becoming a little defensive of his church. You can see him flare up a little bit. If, if you want to come after the Lord's church, let's clarify some things. Whatever you've done, I've done more, Paul says. And I've done it better. Whatever, whoever you think you are, I'm more qualified, more prestigious. Paul says, I've got it all. And even in my state, I can put no confidence in the flesh. So we see Paul's pre-conversion confidence broken down really in two categories. First, his pedigree. And then we also see in those seven characteristics, him calling out some performance, some accomplishments that he's achieved. So verse number five, we see his pedigree circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews that's touching the law of Pharisee. These are the the pedigree elements that Paul calls out to say, hey, you know what? I come from the best of the best. So Paul mentions these four things that he's inherited from birth. And these things would have elevated his, his pedigree over these average, even false teachers of his day. So let's look at these pedigree elements that he calls out first. He was physically circumcised at the specific time outlined, outlined in the law. We see this in Leviticus chapter number 12, verse number 3, that circumcision was to be done on the eighth day. Paul says, box checked. Second, he was of the people of Israel. This call out was just a reminder that Paul was in the line of God's chosen people. He was of the people of Israel. This would have been of high standing. This would have set him apart in his society. He was of the people of Israel. Third, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. 
This would have just been simply a call out reminding these false teachers that his lineage could be traced directly back to the tribe of Benjamin. So much so that some theologians speculate that Paul potentially was named after King Saul. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. This is Paul. These are works that would have been held in high standing and esteem in their society among the Pharisees, among the religious elite of his day. Paul had it all. A Hebrew of Hebrews. The statement was included for good measure in case anyone would seek to one-up Paul. This is a broad, overarching statement, an umbrella statement, if you will. We're not completely sure what this is exactly referring to, but many believe that Paul was calling out the perceived cultural differences between a Hebrew that was still very much connected to the homeland of the, the nation and geography of Israel versus the Jews that would have been placed in exile or a part of the, the diaspora. Those that would have been dispersed as a result of persecution. And some of those would have lost touch with various aspects of Hebrew language and culture. They would have been viewed lesser Hebrews, if you will. But not Paul. Paul was the best of the best. So Paul wasn't just a standout in his pedigree, but his Judaistic performance was exemplary as well, right? Let's look at what Paul has to say at the end of verse number five. What does he he call out here? In verse five, as to the law, Paul was considered and was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul was a part of the most religious group of his day. These were the religious elites. These were, were the men in society that had all the answers, that knew all the scriptures, that kept the law. These Pharisees, they lived committed to the purity aspects of the law, not just during the the time and season of, of being in a temple, but in every day of life. So the Pharisees were taking God's law and what they were doing, they were they were layering upon it extra applications of the law that God had given them. Additional requirements. What did Jesus call these Pharisees when he lived and and walked on this earth? He called them blind, hypocrites, foxes, and a brood of vipers. Jesus had some strong words for these religious elite of their day. Why? Because Jesus knew they weren't desiring to be in a right relationship with the Lord. They were desiring to do what? Trust in their own works, to earn a right standing before God. They were promoting a works-based salvation, if you will. And finally, as to zeal, Paul was a well-known persecutor of the church. In the road to Damascus, when, when Paul 
um, saw the Lord and ultimately was saved. It's often understood that Paul was headed to Damascus to do what? Persecute the church even further. In fact, there had to be some convincing that Paul had truly a salvation experience because Paul had a reputation. The church was fearful of Paul. And Paul, pre-Christ, was thinking that his persecution of this New Testament church was doing the work of God. That he was snuffing out these, these rebels that were proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. So Paul's pre-conversion confidence meter, it is off the charts. His personal accolades and accomplishments were simply second to none is what Paul is establishing here in these few verses. That's gonna bring us to our our second point this morning where I look at Paul's post-conversion confidence was no longer in self, but rather it was in Christ. It's here that Paul builds on his personal story. And just as a, a quick point of application, every believer that knows Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and by God's grace has placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus, we too have a story. We too have a testimony. And God desires to use our story, our life experiences, and the process of life that that God brought us to to that point where we, by his grace, uh, saw ourselves for the first time as a sinner in need of saving. And by his grace, he allowed us to see our sin as it was in affront to a holy God and the fact that we had a problem that we couldn't fix on our own. That that sin broke our relationship with God. And as such, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. He did not leave us in our state as a sinner. But he loved the world. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loved us and gave us his son. Why? So that he could pay for our sin. And as he went to a cross and shed his blood to atone for sin and to take away the penalty for sin, he draws people to himself. He says, come, come to me. I have this free gift. By grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Paul said in his letter to the church at Rome. It's a gift a free gift of salvation that by his grace we simply have to receive through faith, placing our confidence no longer in ourself as Paul once did in verses four through six, but now in verse number seven, he gives this testimony of this post-conversion state of Paul where he places his confidence not in himself but in Christ. Why? Because Jesus is better than any works that Paul accomplished. And the cumulative works that all of us could accomplish, Jesus is better. So Paul builds on this personal testimony, this this story that's unfolding here to this letter uh, to the church at Philippi. And it's here that Paul introduces an illustration. Verse number seven, Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Paul describes his conversion to Christianity in terms of almost a balance sheet. These terms of gain and and loss, these are accounting terms that would have been used uh, to do just that, to provide a proper accounting of one's finances. And so we have this this illustration, this visual of of a balance sheet. In our day, we'd call this what? The P&L. I know we have a a number of business owners here who frequently visit the the P&L, right? That's the profit and loss statement. Verse number seven would, would stand so much in direct opposition to these false teachers as Paul declares, whatever gain I had, Profit, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Paul, by God's grace, made a transfer on his balance sheet. What he once held as gain, his works, his accomplishments, his pedigree, his performance, he made a balance transfer to loss. This has no value. It's it's worthless. It's a write-off. It has nothing for me. Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Why? Because Jesus is better. I might have said that a couple times this morning already. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Paul's accomplishments. Jesus is better than my accomplishments. Jesus is better than your family tree or your popularity or your influence or your likes and followers. Jesus is always better. Because any gain that we could muster up in our own strength, in theological terms, it is, it's worthless. Prophet Isaiah declares this reality, that our righteousness, righteousness that is rooted in our own flesh, it is as filthy rags to the Lord. It's tainted with our pride and our agendas and our biases and our prejudices, accomplishing our own desires for our own glory to build our own name. And so any righteousness that I could accomplish on my own, it is as filthy rags. So this is why Paul takes his confidence in the flesh and moves it from the profit or gain column and transfers it to the loss column. He counts it as loss. But he doesn't just stop there, does he? He builds on the degree of the loss that we're talking about. Look at me at verse number eight. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul doesn't just stop at counting his own works and religiosity and his accomplishments and pedigree as loss. He raises the stakes and says, look, everything in my life everything that I've ever done, everything that I ever will do in my own strength, it is all loss. Why? Because Jesus is better, because there is something more value, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's a value proposition that Paul introduces here, does he not? In verse number eight, the surpassing worth. Paul can logically 
And Paul can theologically count his confidence in self as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Jesus then, in this verse number eight, literally exceeds and keeps on exceeding the value of my own personal gains. Jesus has been, is, and always will be better than my works. This is why Paul called his gain as loss. And he doubles down on this idea of loss at the end of verse number eight where he says that he counts them as what? These works, these accomplishments, this pedigree and performance. He accounts them as rubbish. This word in the Greek is referring to waste material. To state that kindly. Waste material. This is the value of our works. It's referring to that which would be thrown out quickly. It's a strong language, and, and Paul isn't mincing words and calling it what it is. It is rubbish. I love the, the King James Version, how it translates this word literally as dung. This is what works that are rooted in myself are. They have no value, friends. So the application for us all is to consider why do we keep running after our own accomplishments? Why do we keep holding up our works before the Lord and thinking that I'm more accepted or more loved because of what I can do, what I can be? Paul uses strong language here purposefully. There's a balance sheet transfer in the works here. What the false teachers said was loss on the balance sheet, complete faith in Jesus. Paul said it's actually gain. Denial of self, taking up your cross and following Jesus. These are the requirements that Jesus declared in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. Jesus having a conversation with his disciples declares, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man, get this, if he gains the whole world, but yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Nothing that we can accomplish or earn or achieve can exchange, could be exchanged for our soul. Not even gaining the whole world. In the midst of Paul's personal testimony, Paul is layering in some, some pretty incredible theology here in chapter number three. When we gain Christ... Paul says we are now in Christ. And when we are in Christ, we are given the righteousness of Christ. And this is all secured through the expression of faith in Christ. We see this in verse uh, number eight. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. 
I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse nine, and be found in him. So when this balance sheet transfer takes place, when I count my gain, my works as loss, I actually have this great transfer, this great exchange. When I say no to myself by God's grace, I receive Christ. When I receive Christ, I'm found in him, verse nine, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So when we are in Christ, we are given the righteousness of Christ and that's secured once again through the expression of faith in Christ. Paul wants to be extremely clear here that the true gospel of the Bible, it requires complete and total abandonment of confidence in self or works. Even the smallest amount of confidence in self ceases to place 100% confidence in Christ. And if we are not by God's grace placing 100% confidence in Christ, we are still under the law and any righteousness that we are to gain this side of eternity under the law, it will be imperfect righteousness. And it will have no value for eternity. So there's a contrast that Paul introduces here in verse number nine. There's two different types of righteousness, we could call them here. It's introduced by this participle having. It's about having not a righteousness, but having the right righteousness. Righteousness that will allow a a proper standing before a holy God. And any righteousness that's rooted in myself will not allow me to be in a right standing before a holy God. I need perfect righteousness. I need a righteousness that comes from Christ. The righteousness that is of God, that is secured and expressed by faith in Christ in his perfect sacrifice, his perfect person and work. So there's a contrast again in verse number nine a righteousness of the law that is produced by confidence in self and a righteousness of God which is given by Christ and secured through faith. Ephesians 2 verses eight through nine, we're gonna look at that passage in our A&I time, our discussion time after uh, the service here. You're gonna look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You're gonna provide some parallels between Paul's teaching in Ephesians and Paul's teaching right here in Philippians. You know these verses well if you've been in church in any amount of time. These verses are are on the headstone of of my dad. These were his favorite verses. This was his hope. He said, uh, Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the beauty of being in Christ. What does that phrase mean? It conveys language of trusting and taking safety and security in something, to take refuge in something to save. 
So as we look at these final two verses quickly, verses 10 through 11, we're reminded that verses 8 through 11, they're really just one long, big sentence that Paul is teaching through here. Verses 10 through 11 are extension of this teaching of what I had gained, he counted loss, the worth of knowing Christ, being in Christ, having the righteousness of God by faith. And verses 10 and 11 continue this topic. Let's read those verses one more time. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse number 10 repeats the goal or the purpose of Paul's counting loss, his works and accomplishments, performance and pedigree. It was for what purpose and to what end that he counted those things lost so that he could know Christ. Verse number 10 opens up the second time that I may know him. This is huge as we consider so many faulty and unhealthy views of salvation and unhealthy views of heaven. You see, for Paul, being in Christ and knowing Christ, it wasn't about what he could gain. It wasn't about fire insurance. It wasn't about avoiding hell. For Paul, it was about a relationship. It was about knowing the one who had saved him. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, that I may know him. You see, for Paul, being in Christ and knowing Christ, it came at great personal loss to Paul this side of eternity. He suffered for Christ. Where is he writing this letter to the church at Philippi? Is he not behind bars in prison? It was about a relationship. It wasn't about personal gain. It was about knowing the one that saved him and that showed grace towards him. And as such, Paul desired to give his life completely for him. This is the testimony that Paul had in verses 10 and 11. The gospel produced in Paul such a longing for Christ that he wanted to model Christ in every area of his life. In the power of the resurrection of Christ. He believed so convictionally that Jesus rose up from the dead that he wanted to be like Christ in that way. Not so that he could have fame or or power or be known, because he wanted to be like Christ. And we know his motive because he goes on to say, and may share in his sufferings. Paul certainly was able to achieve that end. He did share in the sufferings of Christ in some way, shape, or form. And ultimately, Paul even desired to become like him even in his death. So this progression of suffering and dying, this this was no hang-up for Paul in his understanding of his relationship with the Lord. Why? Because, again, he was so confident of the beauty of this resurrection that the tomb is empty, that Jesus defeated sin, death, and hell. And so that's why he knew that 
Absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. He didn't fear what man could do to him. He didn't fear persecution. He didn't, he didn't fear being imprisoned. He knew at this stage of life that he was likely to become a martyr any single day. And this was a testimony of Paul's heart. That even if he would experience that suffering and that death, that he knew the hope that he had in Jesus Christ. And because Jesus rose, Paul would attain, he would attain that resurrection from the dead. This is Paul's story. It's really a testimony. A story that was marked with a radical abandonment of confidence in self and a sure confidence that is settled completely on the personal work of Jesus. And friends, on the heels of verse number one of chapter number three, do you remember that verse? Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Can you not feel and see the joy that Paul has in serving Jesus, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of persecution and suffering, impending death, martyrdom? Rejoice in the Lord. There's a question for us all here. Do you have this kind of settled and consistent joy that transcends present circumstances that you may be experiencing right now that have you down, that are causing you to doubt the goodness of the Lord? Do you have that type of joy that comes only through knowing the true gospel of the word of God? Because at the end of the day, when we're striving, when we're earning, when we're working for our own salvation, we're always gonna fail. It's always gonna be inadequate in some way, shape, or form, and what goes with that failure? A lack of joy. Worry, anxiety, stress, depression. Look, there's no three points in a poem. There's no self-help book in the gospel, but certainly even in the loss of life, difficult circumstances, persecution, difficult diagnosis, whatever it might be, there is history of Christendom that declares that Jesus is better even in those moments of loss and difficulty and uncertainty. And there can be joy even in those difficult times. That's why James said, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trials because God is at work. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus in this way. You've never seen Jesus as presented in Scripture and you don't know him as Lord and Savior. And as such, you're still in your own sin, striving for your own righteousness, trying to just be a good person, maybe working out those eternal scales of hoping your good works outweigh your bad works. Friends, that will always fail because our confidence in self is not confidence in Jesus. And the only acceptable righteousness to a holy God is the righteousness of his perfect son. And so maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I call to you this morning and say that today is the day of salvation. Jesus desires for you to know him as Savior and Lord. 
If you do confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's a promise in scripture that says you will be saved. Do you see Paul crying out to you in this letter to the church at Philippi? Stop striving. Stop trying to earn favor. Stop trying to keep up with the Joneses. Lay your burden at the foot of the cross and find grace and help in your time of need. You and I will never be good enough. We will never be able to stack up against the righteous requirements of a holy God. But Jesus can and will and offers that righteousness to us through faith. Christian here this morning has this value proposition of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord? Has that value proposition grown a little dim in your life? Have you forgotten the worth of knowing Jesus? Maybe the struggles with sin and the cares of this world have have drowned out these precious realities that Jesus is better. As I was writing this closing conclusion, I remembered the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Maybe we just need to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I hope this morning has been just that, an opportunity to linger in the gospel and to look fresh to the face of Jesus and to remember what the gospel has done. Friends, are you walking in these realities that Jesus truly is better? Do you remember the big idea this morning and we'll close because Jesus is better than anything and everything. By God's grace, I can wholeheartedly place my trust in him alone for salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your love, your grace that's shown towards us in Christ. I pray that we would be challenged with the realities that Jesus, you are better. I pray that we would lay down our own works and if we're trusting in anything else other than the finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, that you would convict us, you would challenge us. Father, I pray there's somebody here this morning, again, who has never placed their faith in you. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would seek out uh, a friend maybe they came with, or they would seek out uh, myself or Pastor Andy or Pastor Dave, and we would love to open up the word of God and just simply share the truth of the gospel with them. Father, I pray that as we close the service this morning and as we declare in song, knowing you, knowing you, there is no greater thing. I, Father, I pray that you would just do a great work Even be with our discussion time afterwards here in just a few moments. You guide our discussion and help us seek by your grace to put these realities into motion. We pray these things in your name. Amen.